Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. L is for the Lord's Supper, also known as Communion also known as the Eucharist, depending on what church tradition uh, you're from. I had what I think were a few good options for the letter L, but I decided to go with the Lord's Supper because I've always had difficulty sorting it out. Having grown up in church, um, and we did communion, that's what we called it. We did communion once a month. I think it was, I think it was the last Sunday. It might have been the third Sunday of every month. We did communion, and even as a child, I wasn't sure exactly what was going on, why it was going on, and how I was supposed to feel about it. And that, that frankly, continues to this day. So I decided to take the, the occasion of the letter L to explore this a little bit. What we're going to do is take part one and look at the four theological views of communion. And then in part two, we'll look at some of the practical outworkings of the Lord's Supper. Uh, when we do it, how we do it, who does it, and so forth. If you're looking for the biblical content on uh, communion, on the Lord's Supper, you look for it in the three uh, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's not mentioned in John. And uh, it's pretty similar in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The only difference is that there is a phrase in Luke that says, do this in remembrance of me. That phrase does not occur in Matthew and Mark. That phrase is significant because it suggests that this is to be an ongoing thing. It suggests that he's going to leave. They didn't suspect that. But when he said, do this in remembrance of me, he's thinking ahead to to future uh, practice of this, what he's about to show them, uh, which was part of the Passover meal, but he's going to imbue it with special significance. Do this in the future in remembrance of me, looking back to this and to what I know is about to happen. So the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then Paul's teaching on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to the end of the chapter. And we're not going to take time to read that now, but we'll be referring to that later on. So if you want, you can now or later go read uh, any one of the three synoptic records. And then um, 1 Corinthians 11, like I said, verse 17 to the end. Okay, the four views, and we're going to start with taking a look at the Roman Catholic view. The Roman Catholic view is sometimes called transubstantiation. You hear the word substance in there, and trans, which means across. And so what happens in the Roman Catholic view is that there is a point in time in the Mass when the bread and the wine stop being in in substance, stop being bread and wine, and are transferred and become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Hence, transubstantiation. It is that point at which, if you've ever seen a Mass, it is that point at which the priest holds the wafer up in the air, up over his head, and says a prayer. And it is at that moment that it stops being bread and literally becomes the body of Christ. I mean that fully literally. He does the same thing with the cup, holds it up, blesses it, and it becomes the blood of Christ. And you're thinking, no, it doesn't. If you put it under a microscope, it's still bread and wine. It is, but but they believe that it is in substance. Even though it still looks, tastes, feels, all of that, 
like bread and wine, it is in fact fully literally. It has been transubstance, transubstantiation. It has been changed to become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That um, that means it is a means of grace. That's a term we're going to use quite often in this part here. It is a means of grace that by partaking of the bread and the juice, by eating the bread and drinking the wine, you receive the grace of God in a way, in a sense, that you could not if you did not receive the body and blood of Christ. Um, And that grace that you receive is the forgiveness of what in Roman Catholicism are called venal sins. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but they have two categories of sins, venal and mortal. Mortal sins are the kind that sentence you to hell. Venal sins are bad, but they're not that bad. They like get you into trouble and interrupt your relationship with God, but you don't go to hell for them. So by partaking of the body and blood of Christ, you receive grace from God that has the effect of forgiving you of venal sins. That does not happen unless you go through this. Hence, means of grace. That is also what makes it what we call a sacrament. A sacrament is kind of a, a, a way of saying means of grace. It is it is a procedure, it is, an, uh, it is something you do that confers grace upon you that you would not receive otherwise. Uh, another, I'm sorry to throw all these terms at you, but another one is sacerdotalism. And what this means is that that point in the Mass, maybe you can picture this if you've seen, either been to a Mass or seen one on TV, uh, where the priest holds a wafer up over his head and prays, and then later does that with the cup, holds it up and prays over it. That is the point at which the transformation takes place. And that has to be done by a priest. Not just anybody has the power to do that. That's sacerdotalism. Only a specific person, uh, only a, a specific class of persons have the authority to do that. So, transubstantiation, within the Roman Catholic Church means that the priest blesses the bread and the wine. And at the moment that he does that, it changes and becomes literally, albeit in a metaphysical sense, but it becomes literally the body and blood of Christ so that when the participant receives that and eats the bread and drinks the wine, they receive a grace they would not otherwise have and their, um, their venal sins are forgiven. Now, th- there are some interesting quirks in all of this, some of which have changed over the centuries and more recently over the decades since Vatican II in the uh, late 60s. It used to be, those of us who are old enough remember, that, that only uh, the priests could take the wine. The Roman Catholic, and you had to be a Roman Catholic in good standing back in the day, you had to have gone to confession. You could not receive communion unless you had first been to confession. Remember the confessional booths? They don't do that anymore, at least not here much in the States. But you went to confession on Saturday nights. Then Sunday, if you had and received absolution for your sins from the priest, then you could receive communion. But you could only receive the bread. 
And the way it worked was he took a wafer and, and you opened your mouth and stuck your tongue out and he put the wafer on your tongue. But underneath your chin was held this little silver tray. And that was um, to keep any crumbs of the bread from falling on the ground. You see, this is literally the body of Christ. And so we can't have this on the ground. Think back to the uh, cathedrals of the Middle Ages and there's mice running around everywhere and we can't have mice eating the body of Christ. And so they hold this tray underneath your chin. Now, long after cathedrals, long after they, they'd invented a better mousetrap, they still did this. And so the, the Roman Catholic uh, worshiper in good standing with the church went up and received the bread. Then the priest would hold the cup up and, and bless the cup and it would be changed to the blood of Christ and then he would drink from the cup and the people would not get it. And that, again, was for a very practical reason. The likelihood of spilling some of that wine was too great if you're going to serve, what, 100 or more people are going to drink from this cup. The chances that a drip falls to the floor, and that's the literal blood of Christ, so we can't have that. But wait, <laughs> there's more because... Back in the Middle Ages, we referred to this in an earlier episode of this podcast. I don't remember which episode it was. But that the Mass was being done in Latin long after anybody spoke Latin. And so you've got a bunch of, of Roman Catholics, of good Roman Catholics, sitting in a cathedral and a priest droning on in Latin and nobody understands a thing he's saying. And if they're not paying attention... They don't see him hold that up and bless it. But that is the center point. That is the most significant part of the Mass. That is the point of transformation, of transubstantiation. The substance changes. And so it was customary in the Roman Catholic Church that a, 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 a bell, I said a big bell, don't think like church bell, think like handheld bell, but a big one is rung loudly. And... <laughs> This sounds crazy, but a very, very practical reason people would have dozed off. These cathedrals are heated by candles, and so uh, they can be warm, they can be stuffy. There's, they can't open windows, they're stained glass and they're shut closed. And people fell asleep because they couldn't understand anything. And now we get to this most significant part of the service, and it changes from being the bread and wine to being the body and blood, and people have slept through this. So they rang, the, the, one of the guys would ring this big handbell, to wake people up so that they wouldn't miss this. And then they would come up one at a time and have a wafer placed on their tongue. Now, since Vatican II, they changed and they allow the participants to drink the wine as well. So there have been some changes there. Now, let's note that this is what's called a dogma. I almost wish that when we did the letter D, we had done dogma. What that means is it is the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. However, it must be said that in many Western countries, including the United States, dogma is not universally, or in this case, even widely held among Catholics. Um, there has been a real, hmm, what, backtracking on the teaching of transubstantiation. So this is not universally held. And if you ask the average Catholic do you believe that you are eating the body? They might well say no. They don't believe they're literally doing that. But it is still the official position of the Roman Catholic Church. This Roman Catholic view comes from their very literal reading 
of the gospel accounts where Christ said, this is my body, which is broken for you, where he said, this is my blood, which is shed for you. And therefore, transubstantiation, it becomes the literal body and blood of Christ. There are a couple of problems with that. Christ clearly meant those as a metaphor. He has done this several times already during his public ministry. When he says, I am the door, when he says, I am the bread of life, he doesn't mean that he is literally bread. He is speaking figuratively, metaphorically. Never mind the fact that the Mosaic law prohibits the drinking of blood. And so if he says, this is my blood, which is shed for you, uh, drink it. And as often as you do this, that would violate the Mosaic law, which he would not do. And so they fail to understand, the Roman Catholic theologians of centuries ago, failed to understand that like other similar passages in the Gospels, Christ is here speaking metaphorically. He's using a figure of speech. Okay, they, uh, the Roman Catholics believe in what is called transubstantiation. And the taking of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist as they call it, is a means of grace, transubstantiation. The second view is called consubstantiation. This is the view of Martin Luther. Now, hey, Martin Luther was a hero. I don't mean to diminish him at all. However, when he left, if we can put it that way, when he left the Roman Catholic Church, it's not like he changed everything. It was an evolution. The Protestant Reformation was an evolution, and he hung on to some things from the Roman Catholic Church from his background there that, that were later discarded within the Protestant Reformation. And his view of consubstantiation is not entirely different from the Roman Catholic view. And so when he reads, this is my body, he doesn't understand that as literally as the Roman Catholics did. However, he said, the way he put it was, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ are in, with, and under the elements. And Martin Luther used the imagery of, he described it as an iron bar heated in a blacksmith's forge. He said that that when that happens, you have both the iron of the bar and the heat that is within the iron bar. And that's what happens in the Eucharist, that the uh, body, I'm sorry, that the uh, bread and wine don't change to become, but the body and blood of Christ are in, with, and through those elements. It is not a re-sacrifice. Martin Luther did not think it is a re-sacrifice as it, was, as it is in the Roman Catholic Church. And there is no sacerdotalism. Remember I said that word means that it has to be done. That moment of transformation, transubstantiation has to be done by a priest. Martin Luther rejected that because there is no point in time at which the change takes place. It is not a transubstantiation. It is a con, as in with, consubstantiation. The body and blood of Christ exist at the same time as and in, with, and under the elements of the bread and the juice. So we don't need sacerdotalism. We don't need some officially licensed and sanctioned guy to make this change. However, Martin Luther still saw the taking of communion as a means of grace. He still saw it as a sacrament, as something that conferred upon the practitioner a a, a measure of God's grace 
that he would not otherwise receive, and only by receiving communion, only by receiving the Lord's Supper, can the participant receive this grace. So with so we've got consubstantiation. We well, I'm sorry. First we have transubstantiation, the change of the elements. Then we have consubstantiation, where both are present, both the physical bread and wine and the spiritual. It is at the same time the body and blood of Christ. It is still a means of grace. Grace is the grace of God is given as a gift to the participant who does that. The third view is called the Reformed view. And and it gets this, sometimes it's called the Calvinistic view, but that's not a great name. When we think of John Calvin and Calvinism, we typically think of doctrines associated with salvation. But John Calvin talked about other stuff. And John Calvin talked about the Eucharist, talked about the Lord's Supper. And so this is sometimes called Calvinistic view because it is the view of John Calvin, but it's probably better to call it the Reformed view. The Reformed theology came out of the teachings of John Calvin, and so it takes it broader than the uh, connotation of Calvinism. Here's Here's what John Calvin said. Christ's presence is not literal as it is in transubstantiation, and then perhaps to a lesser degree, consubstantiation, Luther's view. Calvin said its presence, God's presence, Christ's presence here, is spiritual. It's dynamic. And his analogy was the sun. The sun remains in the heavens, but its light and its warmth are felt here on earth. And so it remains fully and completely, and only bread and wine. However, God God in his sovereignty has decreed that the warmth of, if again, going back to that sun analogy, that the effects of God's work and his grace come through the bread and the wine. This is kind of mushy. Um, the books that I read agreed that the that the a Reformed view is kind of this awkward middle position between consubstantiation and the one we'll discuss next. But Calvin still thought, the Reformed Church still views um, the Eucharist, still views communion as a means of grace. You receive, the, the participant receives God's grace by virtue of going through this practice. However, the Reformed view is that grace is not unique to this practice. In Roman Catholicism, only by going through uh, the Mass and the Eucharist do you receive this grace. In consubstantiation, Luther's view, only by going through this practice do you receive this grace. In the Reformed view, this grace of God that is confirmed, uh, conferred upon the recipient is the same grace and blessing that we get when we do other things. For example, worship. For example, read the scriptures. There's no question that when I sit down and read my Bible, God blesses me. And what, uh, what Calvin was saying is that same kind of blessing comes to the believer who practices the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. So it is a means of grace, but not a unique means of grace. It is one of the ways that God confirms a grace to the believer 
um, is by, by doing this. Okay, the fourth view was advanced by a guy by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli, what a great name. It's Swiss, which is why it sort of sounds German. Um, and, and Zwingli was a contemporary of Martin Luther. And Zwingli said that, that the Lord's Supper, that communion, is only a memorial. It is just a means by which we are reminded. Okay, hey, here's a huge leap, but we're going to compare, uh, we're going to use Freud at this point. Freud said there are three categories of things. There are those which are subconscious. They are deeply buried and they can only be brought to the surface uh, through the help of psychotherapy or something like that, okay? Then there are things that are conscious. Those are things that are active in our mind um, pretty much all the time. And then there are things that are what he called pre-conscious. Those are things that are in our memory, but not at the front. They're not active. Um, however, they don't require a therapist and a leather couch to bring them up. They just require an event, some trigger that brings them to mind. Uh, I would tell you one of my subconscious memories, except I wouldn't be able to because they're subconscious and I need Sigmund to help me out. I can tell you some of my conscious things, like I'm married. I don't need to be smacked upside the head to remember that. I don't need any, any jog to my memory for that. There are pre-conscious things. It, I'll go, oh, wait a minute, that reminds me of. That is an example of a pre-conscious thing. And so, the purpose of the Lord's Supper, according to Zwingli, is to jog our memory. As, as Freud would say, to bring it from our pre-conscious to our conscious. That's what a memorial does. It is not a means of grace. I don't receive any special grace from God for having done this, for having eaten the bread and drunk the juice. It just causes me to remember, perhaps just in a, in a more focused way, what Christ has done for me. So, we have these four views. Transubstantiation changed from bread and wine into, very literally, the body and blood of Christ. Consubstantiation, in addition to being bread and juice, it becomes the body and blood of Christ in, with, through, under, all of that. Third, the Reformed view, that is to say Christ is present in the, in the experience, like the warmth of and light of the sun is present despite the fact that the sun remains away, that, that in the Reformed view, Christ is present, but it is a spiritual and dynamic present. And then the memorial view, when the purpose of the, of the uh, ordinance is to bring it to our mind and focus our attention on these events. Those are the four views. The views which we've discussed that have the Lord's Supper as being a means of grace have, a, frankly, a, a pretty easy answer. There's no passage in the Bible that says that by going through communion, we receive a grace we would not otherwise have. For memorialists, what I think is the biblical view, frankly, um, it is a proclamation of Christ's work. First of all, Christ said, as often as you do, I'm sorry, Paul said, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That, that doing communion says, this is what I believe. It proclaims, I believe that Christ died. He gave his body and blood for me. It is a proclamation. It also has the effect of bringing it to mind and is therefore a spiritual benefit to me as I do it. It 
it takes it from what Freud called the pre-conscious. And then it says, now, wait a minute. Remember what this is all about. And it strengthens my walk with the Lord as it reorients me, as it takes me back to the cross and says, all of this stuff that goes on in life, remember, Buster, the basic of everything you are and ever will be is the cross. It has a benefit. It is not a means of grace. I don't receive grace from God, but it's good for me to go back there. So I proclaim it publicly. I remind myself of it and the centrality of Christ's death on the cross for me. And it is also, Paul says, an expression of unity within the body of Christ. That's something we're going to have to take up in part two. Let's go on now to part two of of L is for the Lord's Supper and explore some of these more practical issues more closely. Mm -hmm. 